This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, placing and taking responsibility for the health of the individual and the planet. From molecular biology to global ecology, from political, social, economics to psychology and spirituality. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, empowering host resistance. We can be found on the web at neijingnow.org. N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W.org. I'm Dr. Jayashree Chandra, and I welcome you to another edition of Exploring Neijing Now. In this episode of Neijing Now, we consider fluoride. Some, like Dr. Howard Pollack, professor of preventive dentistry at UCSF, consider it a friend for preventing dental cavities. It's recommended that you don't eat it. Others, like Miss Carol Vanderstoop, a registered dental hygienist and author of Mouth Matters, feels it's unnecessary. In fact, chemists all know that fluoride and fluorine both are toxic. Historian Timothy Siebert tells us about how Stevens Point, Wisconsin, took the limelight in the 50s in the national debates about fluoridation and municipal waters. And, of course, the whole business of it being a communist plot to kill Americans uh, worked its way in. I'm speaking today with Professor Howard Pollack. He's a clinical professor of dentistry in the Department of Preventive and Restorative Dental Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Professor Pollack, welcome to Neijing Now. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Pollack, you have some expertise in fluoride, and you've also written a fair bit about fluoride and the controversies around fluoride. Before we get into the controversies, I'd actually like you to explain to us the chemistry of fluoride. How does it actually prevent cavities and increase bone density? Well, fluoride is a very interesting element. The element is actually fluorine, which is a gas. It's not uh, a gas in nature. It doesn't exist naturally, but the fluoride ion certainly does. It's present in water, and that's the main source of fluoride since time began. How does fluoride get into the water? Well, fluoride is combined with other elements like calcium, magnesium, aluminum, phosphates, in rocks in the ground. And as water percolates through the ground, it picks up those minerals. And so every water supply has a certain amount of calcium, certain amount of the other elements, and fluoride. The water that naturally occurs in the ground has fluoride in it. It's leached out from rocks that are in the ground. Depending on where you live, you might have more fluoride in your water or less fluoride in your water or even no fluoride in your water. That's correct. Unlikely to have no fluoride unless it's rainwater. So all groundwater will have some fluoride in it. That's correct. The studies that were done in the early 1900s in the United States and elsewhere were able to link the fluoride concentration in the drinking water with a couple of different things with regard to teeth. There was a problem with what was called endemic dental fluorosis. It's not called fluorosis at the time because they didn't know what caused it. It was called mottling of the teeth. Mottling is a change in the appearance of the teeth so that they have little white flecks on them or little striations. And with severe dental fluorosis, uh, it could be stained from the things that we drink or eat and there may, at very high levels, be pitting of the surface so that it's not smooth. The early studies were trying to find out what caused this. It happened in certain communities and not in other communities, and everybody seemed to have it in those particular communities. So it wasn't until the early 1930s that the technology developed to the point where very low concentrations of fluoride could be detected in water in parts per million and found that at about one part per million, there was a minimum amount of dental mottling or dental fluorosis. But also, most interestingly, there was a minimum amount of tooth decay, which led to the development of the notion that, well, why can't we simulate or emulate that ideal environment in other communities? Why can't we adjust the fluoride concentration so that it's at that ideal one part per million? And that's how water fluoridation started. How actually does fluoride prevent cavities? How does it actually work in the mouth or in the teeth or in the bones? Well, looking at the surface of the teeth in people's mouths, 
They're often covered with dental plaque, the bacterial plaque that covers the tooth surface that you're trying to clean off when you brush and floss your teeth. There's a dynamic interchange across the tooth surface and the plaque with the calcium, the phosphates, the fluoride, and the other components of tooth material. The enamel surface is comprised mainly of a complex molecule called appetite. Appetite? The appetite that you get when you're hungry for lunch. This is spelled slightly differently. A-P-A-T-I-T-E. That's right. It's a combination of calcium, hydroxyl ions, carbonate, phosphate, and fluoride that makes the inorganic hard structure of the teeth. Enamel is the hardest substance in our body. It's much harder than bone, much harder than the dentine underneath the enamel of the tooth. It's amazingly resistant to breakdown. Well, the enamel is the shell that covers the tooth. It covers the crown of the tooth. As we get older, the roots of the teeth get exposed, and they're more susceptible to decay because they're not covered by enamel. Enamel is a wonderful substance. And it's made up of calcium, phosphate, this appetite, fluoride, you mentioned hydroxyl groups, and carbonate. Right. In the tooth decay process, we eat things that contain sugar or different kinds of carbohydrates. And the bacteria in our mouths, our mouths can never be sterile, as Madonna said. Well, actually, she said it was a material world. I say it's a bacterial world. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I see a song in the making. There you go. So the bacteria consume the sugars that we put in our mouths and convert that very rapidly into acids of various kinds. And those acids can start to dissolve this very strong enamel appetite material. In that process, in that demineralization of the enamel, those minerals go from the enamel into the plaque. In the presence of fluoride, there's less of that. Because? Because the fluorapatite is just more acid resistant. In the presence of fluoride, the reverse occurs as well. That remineralization occurs. And that remineralized enamel is even more resistant to further breakdown by the acids. So in a fluoridated community, and if you're using a fluoride toothpaste twice a day is what we recommend, you're going to get less tooth to get. Also, doesn't fluoride interfere with an enzyme in your saliva that is involved in breaking down enamel? There's an enzyme called enolase or enolase. It's part of the composition of the bacteria. In the presence of fluoride and concentrated amounts of fluoride, there's an interference with that enzyme so that the bacteria can't produce the acid quite so readily and they can't reproduce quite as quickly. Aha, uh-huh. so it interferes with an enzyme that the bacteria is producing. It's part of their metabolism. Part of their physiology. Do we have enolase in our system? I have no idea. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Is it possible that fluoride also could interfere with enzymes that our body makes? Yes. The issue with any substance is dose or concentration. So, for instance, I mentioned that uh, one part per million of fluoride in water is considered about an optimum amount. In the United States, toothpaste has about 1,000 parts per million. Very concentrated. Okay. Why you don't eat your toothpaste? It's recommended that you don't eat it. Uh, You don't swallow it, you spit it out. Although kids probably eat a fair amount, especially if it's like bubblegum flavored or something. Absolutely correct. And that's one of the concerns we have is that uh, in this country, we don't have a low fluoride toothpaste as there are in other countries. And we've recommended that only a smear or a pea-sized or a rice-sized amount of fluoride toothpaste be applied to very young children's toothbrushes by the parents. Very young children are very good at swallowing and not so good at spitting out. It's manufactured by the companies to be attractive, sweet, bright, and colorful, and it's got all kinds of wonderful names. And That's a lot of education and training and piece by piece, bit by bit, one person at a time. Isn't there a way we can just regulate the toothpaste companies so that they put a more appropriate child-friendly concentration of fluoride in their toothpaste? We don't have a very good system. In Australia, they have half the concentration of fluoride in children's toothpaste. We could just reduce the concentration for everyone too, right? We could. The issue is what is the evidence in terms of what works to prevent tooth decay. And certainly the evidence is very strong that the 
1,000 or higher concentration of fluoride toothpaste. For instance, in England, they have 1,500 parts per million of fluoride. We used to have that product here. It doesn't exist here anymore. But there is even stronger fluoride concentration toothpaste that we can prescribe to individuals who are going to spit it out who are particularly at risk for tooth decay. That's at 5,000 parts per million. The research shows that below 1,000 parts per million, it doesn't have a very strong preventive effect on tooth decay. So that 1,000 parts per million seems to be the level that the FDA is willing to approve based upon the studies and that they would not be willing to give approval as a decay preventive if it was less than that. The toothpaste manufacturers in the United States are unwilling to go through the trials to demonstrate its effectiveness. The results so far outside of the United States are equivocal. So we were talking about the dose makes the poison, basically, and whether fluoride interferes with enzymes that are naturally produced in our human bodies. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that. The concentration, as I've mentioned, in water, one part per million, toothpaste, 1,000 parts per million. In our body, the concentration in the intercellular fluid and plasma is one hundredth of a part per million. So it's 0.01 or maybe 0.02 0.03 parts per million of fluoride is in our bodies, except for our bones. Our bones pick up the fluoride. So at that concentration, we don't find the effects that we see in the bacteria with enolase, for instance. So how well is the fluoride absorbed into the body when you eat it or drink it? It's fairly well absorbed. It's a very small ion, and as long as it's bioavailable and not bound with calcium that might go straight through your system... About half or so of the fluoride that we take in from the water, tea, for instance, has high concentrations of fluoride. Various uh, food items naturally have fluoride. And so about half of that would be excreted immediately. Half of it would be absorbed into our bodies. And of the part that's absorbed into our bodies, most of that is actually picked up by bone. And then some is excreted through urine. We talked earlier about different fluoride concentrations naturally occurring in our drinking water systems. There are some 200,000 people in the United States who live in a community where there's more than four parts per million of fluoride in the water. This is a level that the U.S. EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, considers the maximum amount that should be permitted. People in those communities that have more than four parts per million are advised not to use the waters for human consumption. For children, we don't want them to consume water if there's more than two parts per million in their water supply. And there are about a million people in the United States exposed to that level of fluoride naturally occurring particularly during the tooth development years where the dental mottling is more prevalent. On the one hand, the fluoride will decrease bacterial growth in the mouth, and that helps to prevent tooth decay. It also helps with remineralizing the enamel. So those are the benefits, the good actions of fluoride. On the other hand, it causes mottling of the teeth. How does it do that? Well, the cells that produce enamel are called ameloblasts. During tooth development, before the teeth erupt or come into the mouth, the enamel is forming at a very young age. It's happening in utero during pregnancy for the baby teeth, primary teeth, and it's occurring at around birth and over the next eight years in the permanent teeth. Some teeth erupt when you're six years of age. The wisdom teeth may not come in until you're 25. The critical time for the front teeth, where it's more obvious in terms of the appearance of those teeth, uh, is around the first three years of life. If you're consuming excess fluoride during that time, either by high fluoride in the water, fluoride toothpaste, maybe in a non-fluoridated area, you're being prescribed fluoride supplements because there's not enough fluoride in the water, and that's recommended, particularly for children at high risk for tooth decay. There are problems with excess fluoride intake for some children. Those aminoblasts are very sensitive to the concentration of fluoride. During that maturation process, where they're picking up the calcium and the fluoride, if there's too much fluoride, it interferes with that process. If there's too much fluoride, the enamel doesn't form properly. It's actually been shown that this is hypomineralized, that there isn't sufficient mineral if there's a high level of fluoride. So then that surface can be a little porous. When it comes into the mouth, it can absorb stains and it has different 
optical properties so that light doesn't reflect off it in the same way as, as a normally developed tooth. By and large, it's, it's not a problem. 95% of dental fluorosis is hardly noticeable. You'd be able to see it if the teeth were dried in a certain dental light, and you could see these little white marks in the teeth. Interestingly, most children who grow up in an area where there's high fluoride will not only be exposed to that high fluoride during the tooth development period, but after the teeth come into the mouth. So then the high fluoride is actually very beneficial because it can help to remineralize those porous surfaces. Interesting. So fluoride, it's very highly charged, negatively charged, right? In fact, fluoride is the most electronegatively charged ion. It's like a super magnet. It's usually bound. It binds with calcium sometimes. Yes, uh, calcium in nature, it could be with aluminum, could be with magnesium, any of the cations. How does that impact bone? Because, I mean, bone is highly dependent on calcium for its structure. Bone is very similar to tooth enamel and dentine. It has collagen matrix and it has the inorganic appetite. Bone is intimately connected to our tissue fluids. And so there's this ionic interchange from bone to our fluids. When we're growing, uh, we're absorbing a lot of fluoride. Calcium. Uh, and calcium into the bones. As we get older, we're losing calcium and fluoride from the bone into our tissues. One method that has been used in the past for treatment of osteoporosis is actually to treat with much higher doses of fluoride in order to keep the calcium in the bone. And then the manufacturers of the uh, many drugs that are available now to treat osteoporosis seem to take over and, and the use of fluoride seem to wane. It was effective. It was effective in the treatment and the prevention of osteoporosis getting worse. My understanding is that fluoride will increase bone density, but it also makes the bones more brittle. Again, it's dose. There is a condition called skeletal fluorosis. There have been a few documented cases in the United States and certainly many more in areas where there's very high natural fluoride in the water, greater than four, greater than eight, greater than 10 parts per million of fluoride in the water. The Rift Valley, certain parts of India, China, where they also burn fluoride-containing heating fuel in homes that are not well ventilated, so it gets into the air so that you're breathing the fluoride as well. Parts of India and China have very high concentrations of fluoride in the water. Yes. And so it's in the plants as well, and so they're often using plant-based fuels for home cooking and heating. That's correct. So then the fluoride goes back into the gaseous state, and then you're inhaling it, and you're absorbing it through your lungs. Yes, that's true. So skeletal fluorosis in this country is a fairly rare condition, and it's usually reportable. There have been a couple of cases, for instance, where somebody made iced tea, loved iced tea. Drank gallons of it a day. Two gallons a day. With high fluoride in the water to start with. Yeah, the tea plant loves to take up fluoride. It does, and it seems to not affect the tea in terms of its taste or its uh, ability to grow. And then there was another case where somebody, an adult, uh, liked to brush his teeth six times a day with a lot of fluoride toothpaste and must have swallowed most of it. And as a result, developed skeletal fluorosis. Fortunately, most of that was reversible by eliminating the source of that high fluoride. So what does it mean to have skeletal fluorosis? How do you feel it? How do you see it? What does it mean for your life? Well, if it's severe, you can develop curvature in your spine, aches and pains in your bones. Fractures. And fractures could increase. There was a review of fluoride in the drinking water by the National Research Council, published in 2006, and concluded that at the level of slightly more than four parts per million, there is a greater risk of bone fracture, particularly hip fracture, compared to one part per million. We feel pretty good that one part per million is safe and effective and safe preventing fractures, effective preventing the dental fluorosis and the caries, tooth decay. And the EPA is considering whether or not to actually lower that four parts per million level as the maximum contaminant level of naturally occurring fluoride. What is the concentration in parts of China and India where skeletal fluorosis and dental fluorosis are very, very common? It's been documented at you know, 11 parts per million and higher. There was a review recently of studies from China and Iran 
where the fluoride level was very high. There was concern about what effect does this have on development of our bodies, our systems, our nerves, our brains. There was a conclusion that there was a very small effect on uh, intelligence, that it might lower intelligence by a measurable but very small amount in terms of IQ scores. One of the interesting things I know about India and southern parts of India where the concentration of fluoride in the water is very high, the traditional South Indian cuisine uses tamarind. Tamarind binds fluoride. It prevents the absorption of fluoride from the water. After the British came, people started using tomatoes instead of tamarind, and so it wasn't binding the fluoride as well. Problems from excess fluoride were happening at a higher rate. I did not know that. It's interesting how local cultures can find ways to adapt to things, perhaps without the basic science research, but some symbiosis. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I have to research that myself then. I really appreciate you explaining the chemistry and physiology and toxicology of fluoride. We're running way out of time, and we're not going to be able to talk about the controversies and the politics around the fluoridation of municipal water supplies, and I really had wanted to talk to you about that. Perhaps we could talk another time. Is there anything else you'd like to add? There is going to be a change in the recommended fluoride level for water fluoridation. Currently, I said it was one part per billion. It's actually a range dependent upon the climate. Based on studies in the 50s that uh, children consume more water in hot climates because they're thirstier. Current research shows that uh, children, regardless of climate, consume about the same amount of water and beverages now. Sedentary lifestyles, watching TV screens or computer modules or whatever, uh, not running around outside as much as they used to. And air conditioning. Air conditioning, heating. We've standardized our climates across the whole of the United States. The recommendation now is to go to the lower end of the range that used to be 0.7 to 1.2 is for everybody now to be at 0.7. The WHO has uh, adopted a maximum level for naturally occurring fluoride of 1.5 parts per million. We're moving in the direction of accepting the fact that people are using fluoride toothpaste. Kids are swallowing that. We've recognized that there's an increasing prevalence of dental fluorosis. There's also a decline in tooth decay. That's great. Part of the decline in tooth decay may also just be socioeconomic status. It's always better to be born to more affluent parents. At least in terms of your teeth. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Professor Pollack. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, too. Appreciate it. That was Dr. Howard Pollack, Professor of Preventive and Restorative Dentistry at the University of California, San Francisco, and Chair of the California Fluoridation Advisory Council. Carol Vanderstoop. She's a registered dental hygienist. She's been in practice for over 30 years in Austin, Texas. She's written a book titled Mouth Matters, which draws the connection between oral health and the general health of the body. And I'm really delighted to be talking to her today about fluoride and the practice of fluoridating municipal water supplies. Carol, welcome to Naging Now. Thank you. It's good to be here. Before we get into the fluoride issue, would you like to tell us a little bit about your book, Mouth Matters? Yes. As an active hygienist, 
I realized that we have a great window looking at a person's internal system, if you will, because quite often we can see through the mouth evidence of inflammation that aren't evident as easily to other doctors. When we are working on someone with gum disease, we're going to have many hours over which we can really help them overcome the inflammatory diseases that led up to the gum disease in the first place. And it, uh, as all books do, turned out to be a personal journey of growth for me. I realized that I had adopted a lot of attitudes that I'd learned in school that I no longer feel are appropriate, fluoridation being one of them, but that's just part of everybody's journey. We learn better and then we do better. Well, great. Well, congratulations to you on getting your book out there into the world, and we've discussed this on Aging Now, also the importance of understanding that the mouth is not separate from the rest of the body and that oral health is intimately related to our overall health and well-being. So it's really wonderful to know that you're also getting the same message out there. I'm glad we're joining forces now today here in this conversation. Tell me about what you think about fluoridation of municipal water supplies. Well, let me start off by saying that, of course, I thought it was the best thing ever from what I learned at Baylor. Well, I realized that I couldn't put this book out without looking at mercury and fluoride and some of the other issues that are very controversial right now. Before we get into what you found out, tell me why you were so gung-ho about fluoride in the past. What we learned was that fluoride is supposed to harden teeth and make them very resistant to cavities. There are a lot of studies, there's a lot known, and a lot of dental people don't even really look at what's been printed out there. If they did, I think they'd be shocked. Well, let's go back to the original premise. When we fluoridate water, we're going to do it with several assumptions in mind. First of all, understand that fluoridation is a way of medicating people, right? Medicating Uh, masses of people. Masses of people, right. And, of course, it was done in the 50s. The assumptions were each child would drink one liter of water a day and that children would have no other source of fluoride exposure. The point of that was so that the fluoride would be uptaken by newly forming teeth and that would give this incredible benefit of being very decay resistant. Things have changed since then, but back in the 90s, Dr. Featherstone did a study that many dentists thought would be the be-all, end-all study to show that the main body of the tooth only takes up 100 parts per million, and the very, 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 very most outer layer might come up to 1,000 to 2,000 parts per million, but it is not enough to retard decay. So one would have thought that that would be the end of fluoridation. That isn't what happened. You know, we have to remember that Essentially, everything is politics. There are a lot of agendas involved. Once you debunk the fact that systemic ingestion of this medication didn't work, then the forces turned right around and changed what they were saying to say that, well, topical, you know, as it passes over the teeth, that would work. That's a pretty interesting turnaround, especially when you consider it's passing over those teeth rather quickly. And everybody knows the plaque is that germy conglomeration of carbohydrates that sticks onto the teeth and that's white that we can't see at and under the gum line, in between, and then it's in the little grooves on the top surface of the tooth where the brush can't reach it. Another study says that unless you have perfectly clean teeth in the first place, the fluoride is not even going to make it to the tooth because it takes about 30 minutes to go through a layer of plaque to even start to have action. I remember as a kid sitting in the dentist chair and having this grape-flavored fluoride put over the teeth and kind of having to sit there for a while. And and you swallowed a lot of it too, didn't you? Probably. A lot of doctors are still doing the little fluoride rinses and they have little fluoride trays and they have different ways. And many of those ways are not effective for, for uptake. And the studies show that. The doctors keep doing it anyway just because it's expected and it's a little income stream to their offices. You know, I think they're doing it for the best of intentions, but they just really need to look into it. So what you're saying is that the topical application of fluoride doesn't actually get absorbed into the tooth. It actually can, but under real-world circumstances, it's not going to go through the plaque to get to the place where it needs it the most. What we're trying to do is remineralize those places where the plaque is left, and yet, I mean, I can't tell you how poorly most people take care of their teeth and don't know it, you know. Right. The tooth wouldn't absorb it from the places that it could absorb it and then redistribute it 
throughout the tooth. It doesn't work like that. That's not how it works. When you take it internally, say through your drinking water or as a fluoride supplement, then your body might be able to use it in the same way that it uses calcium to mineralize bone and teeth. Well, it's not going to go into the teeth from there. Teeth are formed by age 8 to 12. In all fairness, I will say that when the fluoride passes through and over the teeth, a little bit is left in the residual saliva for about 20 minutes that can then help the teeth. I just think we need to have a more targeted population. I just don't think that we need to be medicating everyone out there. Well, first of all, does the fluoride in the water actually help the teeth? When that 90s study came out, they had to do that turnaround and say, it isn't internal, it is topical. I would even like to turn that around a little bit. I think that we need to heal from the inside out and not be always treating symptoms, symptoms, symptoms all the time. Having a good pH in your saliva, having saliva at all. So many drugs drive people out. They're always going to have an acid mouth, so that's going to be a very difficult thing to deal with. One of the things I've learned is that there are three ways teeth can rot from the inside out. And most doctors have never heard of these ways. Most people have never heard of these ways. Case in point, my daughter had, you know, the little grooves on the top of your teeth where you chew and they touch? Sure. Sometimes they don't form correctly and you get little cracks in the side. You can't just use x-rays and a pick to diagnose these. That is just way, way too late by the time you're going to catch it. Do you mean catch cavities that form in those grooves? Yes, it's a very, very, very late stage. And that's a surprise to most people because that's how most doctors still do it. We have such better ways to do it now. I use air abrasion and a diagnodent. I actually cleaned out my daughter's groove that looked absolutely pristine. The x-rays showed absolutely pristine teeth. And Mm. yet I, I just didn't trust it. So I took an air abrasion unit and just lightly dusted off the teeth. And one little groove opened up into a fairly large wormhole that went on into the tooth. And as it got down close to the pulp, getting a little bit nervous about whether the pulp would be involved, I stopped, took an x-ray of the teeth, and guess what? You couldn't even see that hole that I had made in her tooth. In the days when I believed in fluoridation, it did change the outside of the tooth, that very most outer shell, so that the x-rays deflect differently. And so that would have been a very late stage. You know, she could have lost the tooth if it had gone on much longer, and yet that tooth looked pristine to traditional ways of hunting for decay. I mean, it seems to me that there's evidence that fluoridation of water supplies decreases cavities. If you'll go back to what I just said, the little story I just told, who's even diagnosing these cavities, or are we just diagnosing them later? You know, uh, fluoride enters the pineal gland and changes the date of puberty and changes a lot of things that are going on within the body. Tell me about fluoride being taken up by the pineal gland. I'm curious about that. First of all, let's talk about some of the susceptible subpopulations. Even the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences designated kidney patients, diabetics, seniors, and babies as susceptible subpopulations to fluoride. They're susceptible to fluorosis, which would be an excess fluoride. Fluorosis, to me, is just a marker for fluoride in the body. Let's talk about what happens when you drink fluoride. 50% you excrete. 50% you don't excrete, if you have a healthy kidney, that is. So where does all the rest of that fluoride go? Well, 90% of it goes to bone, but a lot of it goes elsewhere. It accumulates in the kidneys. Certainly people who have to have dialysis, they have to use absolutely pure water. They can't even think about getting fluoride close to their kidneys. So the kidney is one, but the pineal gland is one of the first major soft tissue places where it goes. Melatonin is linked with the pineal gland, as is early puberty when things aren't going well there. If you look at the place where fluoride sits on the periodic table, I mean, who remembers that from ninth grade? But at any rate, that whole column that fluoride is a part of, those are called halides. And fluoride is the most electronegative of all of those. It's highly reactive. In fact, Mm -hmm. chemists all know that fluoride and fluorine both are toxic. All of those, fluorine, chlorine, bromine, all go to the thyroid and displace the iodine that's necessary for the thyroid to act properly. Look at all the people who have thyroid problems in this country. 
In fact, in Europe, they used to treat hyperthyroidism, you know, where you have an active thyroid with fluoride. Huh. And then bone. It makes bone more dense but more brittle, quite the way fluorosis can do to teeth, particularly the more advanced cases of fluorosis. Right. When you get an overdose of fluoride, maybe harder, but they're more brittle. It's like something that's very hard when you drop it on the floor. It can just actually shatter. Bone, it's not so much about minerals as the elasticity of it. What compressive and tensile forces can it deal with? And fluoride does not help with that. Dr. Hardy Lineback, I think he's at the University of Toronto. He was asked to be on the Environmental Protection Agency's they were looking at the maximum contaminant dose of fluoride to be putting in water. He was a pro-fluoride advocate until he sat on that and uh, did a lot of the research and looked through it. That's a fascinating book that they put out. By the time where they put out that report, Hardy actually came out and made an apology that he was a pro-fluoride advocate and said, you know, that was a mistaken policy. I mean, he's the head of prevention at the University of Toronto, and he works tirelessly to get that concept out of people's heads. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think he's been able to keep his position there. I think it's disingenuous. The dental societies say, oh, yes, they lowered the maximum fluoride dose allowed in water because we just get it from so many sources. And then they'll name all the dental sources like toothpaste and the different rinses and so on. But they are not looking all the uses that we use it for. I mean, bottling companies, canned food, it is a pesticide, for crying out loud. It's a very effective pesticide. You can even grow produce organically and then fumigate it after the fact, like with cryolite, which is a synthetic fluoride, and still call it organic. Wow, that's amazing. Fluorine is a very toxic substance, and I know that if you get it on your skin, like an organofluorine compound, it can just eat away your whole tissue really, really rapidly. It's really quite remarkable. Well, you should see what the concrete pads at the uh, water plants look like where they deliver the fluoride. It'll eat a hole in concrete, that's for sure. Yeah, because it's so negatively charged, it just will bind up anything and everything in its way. And there's a lot of occupations that plant use cleaning agents like hydrofluoric acid or people who are etching in glass or... Things they do, they make the chips that way, and the windows of those doors in the clean rooms get etched very quickly just because the gas is so corrosive. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If I asked the group of dentists where they would find it, they would never be able to tell you for the most part that, you know, it's almost 900 parts per million in tea or 25 parts per million in wheat germ or all the cleaning uses that they have of it. There's only one way to effectively and efficiently remineralize a tooth, and I go into it in my book a little bit, ozone. The germs are entering the tooth and causing a problem. You can put ozone gas on it and that gas penetrates the tooth by about five millimeters and doesn't just kill the germs, but it also changes the chemistry of the tooth. The acids that they're making are no longer acid. You've neutralized the tooth and then the natural cleansing power of the tooth, which many people don't think about, the pulp of their tooth is there to bring minerals and nutrients from the inside out to the tooth, and if they're not having a lot of sugars and they're eating correctly, the flow goes from the pulp out through the tubules and can bring minerals and can actually truly heal from the inside out. For those who eat sugars, it reverses the flow in those tubules and it brings things from the outside environment in, and that's never a good thing. The stance you're promoting is you have good nutrition, you're paying attention to cultivating your general good health, that that's actually going to give you stronger teeth in the long run. Yes, I think it's pretty virtually impossible to have decay if your pH in your mouth is good and you keep the plaque off of it. In general, I would say people are very wary about mass medication, and yet somehow municipalities have been able to agree upon mass medication with fluoride. What do you think the dynamics are there? (laughs) Oh, boy. Mass medication, those are inflammatory words indeed, aren't they? But it is true. Every, every, every other medication on the planet, fluoride is the only one that I can think of that we do that with. 
you as a doctor, when you prescribe, you look at the weight of a person, you look at the individual need, you look at additional exposure sources, and you look at their medical history. Kidney function, their liver function, their age, their everything. Yeah, that's their medical history that you've got to look at. How about babies? They're getting way too much fluoride. And and this is all over the place, like don't give your child, you know, mechanically deboned meat because the bone is so high in fluoride that it really makes these foods, including chicken nuggets and so on, way over the top in fluoride. People are drinking reconstituted juices and sodas. Well, even how about canned beans or any beans if they're made with tap water? How much fluoride are you getting? You're just way over the top. We're not underdosed. How do you think municipalities have been able to get this through? I got off course, yeah. It's a political decision. Everybody has agendas. I don't know if you even know what the source of our fluoride is. Basically, it's from one of two sources, from aluminum fluoride manufacturer as a waste product or from phosphate fertilizer manufacturer. I couldn't believe it. They're using fluoride, and then when they've got that fluoride as a waste product from their manufacturing process, they're selling it to municipalities to put in our water, in our drinking water. That's what you're saying? Yes, precisely. (laughs) Pretty shocking. I didn't believe it at first. You know, you read some of these articles, you see some of these movies that are designed to shock, and and you just go, oh, whatever, these people are crazy. I mean, that's kind of where I started. Right, right, right. But it is true. I've got the data sheets from Lucier and so on. And now it's much more accepted. Everybody knows that that is where it comes from. 92% of the communities who medicate city water with fluoride do so with industrial-grade hydrofluorosilicic acid or sodium silica fluoride. These are byproducts of phosphate fertilizer manufacturing, because that's the majority of it. Phosphate ores naturally contain about 2 to 4% fluoride, as well as other class 1 toxins like lead, uranium, cadmium, and arsenic. To extract it from the ore, it's treated with sulfuric acid, creates a steam that carries the toxins to pollution scrubbers. And then the unrefined toxic wastes are removed, and, you know, when they clean the scrubbers, and off it goes, cities across the country. But, you know, everybody like, oh, don't worry about it. It's so diluted, it doesn't matter. Really shocking. It, it is. It's really kind of sad. How would a person find out if they have fluoride in their water? Well, that's easy. They just call the water department, and actually the water department usually sends out annually, I think, what the concentration is. If somebody didn't want to have fluoride in their water and their municipal water supply was fluoridated, how would they go about advocating with their municipality to take fluoride out? not the municipalities that make that choice. It's the political powers that be. In our city, it's the city council. They have to rely on referred expertise. They're not necessarily scientists themselves. I don't think they have any business making that decision. They look back to the CDC, and I think, I know there's a lot of money involved because this is an incredible amount of waste that these fertilizer manufacturers and aluminum manufacturers have. It's extremely toxic. What the heck are they going to do with it? That is what the bottom line is. And it would be very, very expensive for them to get rid of it in any other way. Instead of paying an expense to get rid of it, they're actually making extra money off of it. Yeah, it's kind of like that. We are walking toxic waste crowns. Yeah, you know, money drives everything. It's fascinating to watch one doctor say, well, I've never seen anybody growing horns. That wasn't what you were claiming. So is there a national network or coalition or is there are there local ones, regional ones, where people can collectively make their wishes known or voice their opinion so that they can influence city councils. There's a lot of grassroots action happening. FluoridaAlert.org is a wonderful website. I don't understand why people aren't more active than they are, though. Well, I think they also think that it's good for you. There's an understanding that you want fluoride in your toothpaste and you want fluoride in your water because that's good for your teeth. I forget that there's the majority of the population who doesn't do due diligence to learn what it is they're doing to their bodies. So that's true. I mean, in my world, nobody thinks fluoride is a good idea. So if people want to read your book, they can come to mouthmattersbook.com. There's so much new dentistry that I talk about. I mean, most dentistry 
sets teeth up for sale over a lifetime. I think Delta Dental now said that if you pick up a drill and touch a tooth with it, you're going to have at least $6,000 worth of bills just on that one tooth to get you to age 70, and quite often, teeth sale before then. I introduce biomimetic dentistry and air abrasion ozone dentistry because these are much more gentle, modern ways of treating a tooth that help it survive. I mean, if you have to use a drill, you're just not diagnosing early enough. So I talk about correct early diagnosis. So that's mousemattersbook.com, and then you mentioned the Fluoride Action Network, which is at fluoridealert.org, and fluoride is spelled F-L-U-O-R-I-D-E, and then alert.org. Carol, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much, Jayshree. It was nice talking to you. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That was Carol Vanderstoop, a registered dental hygienist and author of The Mouth Matters Book from Austin, Texas. speaking with Mr. Timothy Siebert. He's an historian (laughs) uh, and president of the Portage County Historical Society in central Wisconsin. Mr. Siebert, welcome to Naging Now. Thank you. (laughs) Appreciate it. We're in the archives of the Portage County Historical Society, and we've dug up some information about the fight for fluoridation in which Stevens Point, Wisconsin, was in the limelight in the national debate about fluoridation of municipal water supplies. So, Mr. Siebert, what can you tell us about the fight for fluoridation in Stevens Point? Okay, the whole thing came up in the late 40s. There was a big push in the state led by a Dr. Frisch to get all of the communities in the state to fluoride their water supply to help teeth and all that stuff. But in Stevens Point, there was a small group of people led by Alex Wallace, who some argue was something of a crackpot. Others argue was, you know, a great shining knight and all that sort of thing. Anyway, he and several of his supporters uh, went very public with it. They had uh, meetings in public. They went to the newspaper, all sorts of anti-fluoride stuff. And, of course, the whole business of it being a communist plot to kill Americans uh, worked its way in although that never became the prominent one. Most of it had to do with health, that somehow we were going to all die from fluoride. Did they have some kind of science to back that up, or were they just, you know, kind of worried? There wasn't a whole lot of science to back it up, no. And what they argued is that there wasn't a whole lot of science to support it either. Therefore, it's wrong. That was probably true, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In any case, they became very, and that's why it made national attention, because they became so vocal about it and so public uh, with all these meetings and newspaper articles and blah, 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 that a lot of focus came on the community. And ultimately, the community voted, they went with Wallace, they voted against fluoridation. I understood it was like two to one. Yes, it was overwhelming in in favor of anti-fluoridation, which of course meant that Dr. Frisch and his supporters were (laughs) extremely frustrated. Eventually, and unfortunately, I don't know when this happened, the city did go to fluoridation, even though 
the vote was against it. But when that took place, I can't tell you. Yeah, and it's also interesting that nobody in Stevens Point knows when that took place or how that took place. Nobody on the city council knows. Um, we've you know made a few phone calls to archivists at the university library and to people at the city council, and it seems like it's kind of a mystery. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, the city water department, when I contacted them, the gentleman there didn't know. <laughs> so hopefully somebody will dig it up at some point. But right now, I can't tell you when it happened. Uh, the fight in Stevens Point was over by the early 50s. It started about 1949, and by 1951 or so, it was over, and the vote had been taken and turned down. So you were about seven years old at the time? Uh, three. <laughs> Just three. <laughs> so I don't remember a whole lot about it. Uh, I do remember hearing people talk about Alec Wallace as a crank and a you know crackpot, that sort of thing, and others talking about, like I said before, the Shining Knight. So he was very much a lightning rod for a whole bunch of stuff in Stevens Point. Very well-educated man, uh, wrote a lot of stuff, that sort of thing. But Yeah, you mentioned that he wrote a complete history of Portage County, and he did it by writing an article every week for the—every day. He wrote an article every day for the Stevens Point Journal, and now that's become a book. Well, not yet. We're, we're hoping to do it, but money being tight. We haven't figured out a way to get newspaper print onto a book format. Uh, apparently, there is a technique for that that's fairly new, but I don't know anything about it. The newspaper is just too tiny to read. So so you need somebody to come in here and like type it all out again. <laughs> yeah, all six three-ring binders worth. <laughs> that's going to happen. Sounds like you need a bunch of volunteers and a pile of money. <laughs> yeah, a pile of money would be right, yes. So it sounds like we need somebody investigate a little further into how this turnaround happened between the people voting no on fluoridation and the city council somewhere along the way putting it in the water. Yeah, right. be interesting to see what year that switch took place. Uh, since the vote was in the early 50s, and if it took 10, 15, 20 years, I have no idea. But it'll be interesting to see when that all changed and why. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, too. So we're going to have to follow up on this issue. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Siebert. Well, it's been an experience just coming into this archive room, and I really appreciate you talking with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Mr. Timothy Siebert, the president of the Portage County Historical Society in central Wisconsin. Our concluding poem. Hallowed be the halogens, fluorine, chlorine, bromine, iodine, even unstable, rare, hot astatine, all familiar to thine eyes as solids, gases, liquids, and plasma, even at standard conditions, acidic in bondage, typically salted, cleansers of much except our sins, all of them toxic by dose. Neijing Now was written, edited, recorded, and produced by Dr. Jai Shri Chander. Website by Takahiro Naguchi. Tabla and Manjira played by Jai C. Compositions from Pandit Swapan Choudhury. Bass guitar by Pedro Ordonez. Drum set by Jisi Garcia. Multi-instrumentalist Dave Rosenfeld. Concluding poem written by Jai C. Distributed by Gypsy Jace Productions. Found at gypsyjace.net. J-Y-P-S-Y-J-A-Y-S dot N-E-T. You can find us on the web at neijingnow.org. N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W dot O-R-G. Neijing Now is an entirely listener-supported endeavor. Please donate generously if these shows are beneficial and enjoyable. Your support is essential to keep this program alive.